Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. We've got two new sponsors for the show today. The first is Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice. With Dollar Shave Club, you get a great shave at a great price delivered right to your door. You know, before I heard about Dollar Shave Club, it had been years since I shaved with a blade because I just got tired of paying so much for replacement cartridges. I mean, they they lock them up in a drugstore like they're, I don't know, gold or plutonium or something. (laughs) Yeah, heck, they're they're priced like it. But, well, Dollar Shave Club gives you a great razor and blades, and their Dr. Carver's shave butter is way better than the shaving cream I used to use. Now, Jay, I know you've used Dollar Shave Club. What's your experience been? I have, and I'll tell you, it's been it's been uh, fantastic, uh, and, and I actually look forward to shaving. That that sounds that sounds kind of crazy, but uh, but it's true. And and the convenience of having it delivered, as opposed to having to running running out to a, a drugstore or somewhere, uh, you know, a, a big box store, which which I absolutely hate uh, and rarely have time for. Um, I, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And, uh, I've, I've been, I've been thrilled, uh, with, uh, with the experience. Yeah. You know, uh, you too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. In your first month box, you get an awesome weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of their shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. There are no hidden fees and no commitments. Cancel anytime you like. Join the club today at dollarshaveclub.com tpg. That's dollarshaveclub.com tpg. Okay, on to our first story for this week, the Georgia special election for that 6th Congressional District, the seat that opened up when President Trump named the previous office holder, Tom Price, as his Secretary of Health and Human Services. Now, Democrat John Ossoff far outdistanced his closest challengers in the election by winning 48% of the total vote, but that was just shy of the outright majority he needed to avoid a runoff with the second top vote-getter, Republican Karen Handel. Uh, The runoff election to be held on June 20th should attract millions of dollars, and it's expected to be uh, pretty much a nail-biter. So, Jay, what, if anything, do you think this special election tells us about how things stand between Democrats and Republicans, and what do you think we might expect in uh, midterm elections, which are just over 18 months from now? Yeah, I'm, I'm still saying that uh, what we can expect from this or what we can learn from this is not much, uh, because as as we dis- we talked about last week, special elections are special. Uh, it's, it's a different, if it's a different vibe, it's a different, um, uh, different rules, uh, different turnouts. Uh, and, and I think what you're talking about of what happened here, where you had the Democrats essentially cleared the field for one candidate and the Republicans had, uh, as we did in the presidential election, 17, 18 candidates, um, you know, and you have a, a, a relatively low turnout and, and the Democrats, Democrats were able to raise money and energize around one candidate. Uh, that candidate outperformed uh, what uh, what the, the average Democrat candidate would. I, I don't think that's what's going to happen when we get to the uh, runoff in June. 
Uh, I think Republicans are going to coalesce uh, around uh, the uh, the uh, the candidate, and and I, you know I, I'd expect I'd expect uh, uh, that she's going to carry the seat by I'd, I'd say five five to seven. Wow. More, more or less typical of, of what that district is, probably a little less than what the, the district usually is. But I don't think it's it's any real uh, harbinger of, of something that's going to happen in the, the general elections, because I think those are it's, I think it's two different animals. Well, you know, I, I, I agree with your point that special elections are, in fact, special. Uh, I don't know if a five point win is going to happen because that district has been trending moderate for for a while. I mean, Clinton lost to Trump by less than two percent in in that district. To me, uh, a much bigger story was what we talked about last week, that Kansas four uh, district where Democrats did not pick up that seat. But this was a district where Trump beat Clinton by over 27 points. And that was, you know, a fairly reasonably close race. So To me, I think there are a couple of potential implications here. Well, for one thing, I think this demonstrates it's not surprising that Democrats are a lot more, uh, uh, they're a lot more engaged. They're a lot more uh, outraged, I guess you could say. It makes sense. They're more energized because of the environment. And and I think the party party out of office always is. Sure. And, you know, I think there are a couple of policy implications you might draw from this, though. Number one is that Looking at these results, I think there are some Republicans in Congress who might be slightly less likely to do hugely disruptive things like gut Obamacare without a decent replacement. Uh, A second policy implication, I think, is that it gives Democrats in Congress even more incentive to resist pretty much everything, basically the Republican playbook when, you know, President Obama was president. I think because they say if the House is in play, then they definitely don't want to give Trump anything that even resembles a legislative win. So what I I see this as meaning is, is even more certainty of gridlock and maybe making Republicans a little more gun shy to do some of the more radical things. What do you think? I, you know, I think you're right on the second point uh, that that maybe uh, the Democrats will will continue to play gridlock just to keep keep Trump from getting a win. Um, I don't know that it changes how how Republicans uh, vote or makes them more moderate. Uh, I, I think they they still have to do something uh, on Obamacare with, with repealing and replacing, and and I, I I don't know that you know they have to get to get that through the the rest of their their caucus. So um, I don't know that it changes the Republican playbook that much. I think the Democrats, again, it gives them incentives just to, to vote no, which was sort of the game theory type situation anyway. they there was no real advantage for most Democrats except in in certain swing uh, swing seats and certain Senate seats. I think you're gonna see that. But uh, you know I, then a larger point to me, and I think this is where a lot of the the analysis has gone wrong. Is it always matches up? Uh, how did uh, Trump do in this district or that district versus how did this candidate does? And I, I really think you have to set Trump apart from uh, other Republican candidates. Um, you know, for example, last year there was the 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 popular theory, and I subscribed to it too, was that uh, Trump was going to hurt uh, the down ballot candidates. And that wasn't necessarily so. There were a lot of down ballot candidates, uh, Senate candidates, for example, uh, who outperformed Trump. Uh, so I, I, I think to to say, well, Trump only won the district by two, therefore it's 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 leaning, uh, uh, becoming more moderate. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think again, Trump is sort of a special, a special animal, uh, sort of sui generis, and it's to to say. 
Trump and and you know the average Republican candidate, I think I think are two separate things. You know that that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that, and I hadn't certainly oh. seen anything about that. And that, that gives me a little a little food for thought there. So thank you. That that's uh, hmm. I, I will have to consider that, Jay. Every once in yeah. a while, you well, not every once in a while on a regular basis, you have great things to say. Every once in a while, you you surprise me with something that just kind of pull right out there. It's like that's that's interesting. Well, we will we will see certainly what happens on I think it's June twentieth is the is the election, and and certainly there's going to be an awful lot of money that pours into this on both sides. Yep. So, you know, Jay, uh, you travel for business, right? I do. I yeah, do. Fair know, amount. I, I probably, I don't, I, well, I do probably not as much as you do, but you know, our next sponsor is I think right up our alley, upside.com, the best new way to buy business travel. Even if you're not a business traveler, I bet you know someone who is, and you should definitely tell them about upside. Here's what's great about it. Every time you buy a trip at Upside, you save a ton of money and they give you an Amazon gift card worth $100, $200, even $300 every single time. And the way Upside does it is to bundle your flights and hotel together for one low price. And bundling, of course, saves money, especially on business travel. So Upside gives you free Amazon gift cards. And if you're a frequent business traveler, your company saves a ton of money and you can get thousands a year just for buying your air and hotel together at Upside. Plus, you still get all your miles. Now, my wife and I travel for political science conferences all the time, and oftentimes it's to present a paper that we co-authored, and I know I'll definitely be going to Upside before we book our next conference trip. So if you're shopping for business travel, check out Upside.com. It's a total no-brainer. I mean, it takes just three minutes, if that. It actually took me less than that to see how much you can save by buying your flights and hotel together for one low price. And Politics Guys listeners get a special deal. Use the code BIZTRIP, that's B-I-Z-T-R-I-P, and you're guaranteed to get at least a $200 Amazon gift card for your first trip. That's BIZTRIP, the code that gets you at least a $200 Amazon gift card free. How can you not do it? Save big on travel and get a big gift card every trip. Upside.com, that's Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Okay, on to our next story today, Jay. Uh, you know, I don't think we've, well, in the two years or so we've been doing this show, I don't think we've ever said the words Bill O'Reilly, have we? I don't think so. I, I don't know. I, I, I doubt it. This may be the first Maybe and last time. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, of course, he was recently fired from his job hosting The O'Reilly Factor, which is, for many years, has been the tentpole show for Fox News, which in turn, has been the undisputed cable news ratings king for many, many years. And the firing, which comes with a pretty cushy $25 million payout to O'Reilly, came after a massive advertiser pullout after a New York Times story earlier in the month detailed a pattern of sexually inappropriate behavior by O'Reilly, all of which he denies, I should add, but one that resulted in Fox paying out millions in settlements from 2002 through 2016. So, Jay, were the Murdochs right to let O'Reilly go? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, you know, look, I've behavior. I mean, I, I think you sort of sometimes have to say that regardless of someone's ideology, and I'm not even sure how you describe O'Reilly's ideology, um, but just because they, they may uh, agree with you on ideological points doesn't mean you can defend uh, their behavior in all circumstances. And uh, there can be uh, uh, conservative louts and, and liberal louts. And uh, it certainly sounds as if uh, uh, O'Reilly is, is one of the former. 
Um, you know, and it's 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 a shame he sort of uh, had a good thing going and and uh, apparently you know ruined it all by himself. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's I so I, I I credit Fox for doing what what they're doing. I mean, they're essentially in sort of a house cleaning mode uh, coming off of uh, the Rupert Murdoch situation, which was 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 similar in in nature. Um, and and I think it's it's probably better for the network uh, to do that. Yeah, I mean, that was first, like you said, where, where Murdoch fired uh, or pushed out Roger Ailes, who, of course, was the essentially the founder of Fox News. And uh, and now with O'Reilly, I mean, it's a, it certainly seems like uh, with all this, a lot of people suggested there's a workplace culture at Fox that is uh, not exactly what, what you want in the 21st century from what we've heard, that the younger Murdochs actually are, have, are trying to move Fox News into more of a 21st century culture where women are not seen as, you know, objects to be, uh, to be harassed. And I certainly think that's a good thing. And, and, you know, Bill O'Reilly has always bugged me on a real fundamental level. And it's not because he, well, it's not because he's conservative. There are plenty of conservatives, even conservatives on TV who I respect. I certainly respect George Will. I, 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 fervently disagree with Charles Crothheimer, but I respect him. But Bill O'Reilly's always had this ridiculous, I'm looking out for you, tough guy, Irish, straight talking, no spin zone persona. And it just always, I thought, stunk to high heaven. I think he's just a, a big blowhard, like you said, lout, you know, kind of craven opportunist. And, and I am so happy to see him go because I just, oh, he's always just giving me that visceral kind of reaction. But, you know, to me, it also shows the power of advertiser boycotts because this wouldn't have happened if all those advertisers hadn't pulled out. And of course, as some people have pointed out this week, you know, it's not just it's not just conservatives who buy Mercedes or a lot of these other products. And so these sort of these sort of movements from like uh, I think it was Grab Your Wallet was one of the movements who kind of pushed on this. That can make a real difference. And so, you know, we've seen the uh, the results of this kind of direct action. There was a similar thing a few years ago when Glenn Beck got forced out of Fox News. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not so sure it's the organized uh, uh, folks out there pushing it. It's probably a combination. I think it's also more just advertisers read the papers. And when these things start appearing in the papers repeatedly, repeatedly, uh, decide that they they would choose not to have their product associated with with that person. Uh, so, I mean, I, yeah, I get it. I, I think it's 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 some of the activist thing. But I I, um, I don't think you're going to see uh, you need to have some some. Uh, uh, some fire there, some something there to to get activated about, I guess. And uh, O'Reilly seemed to provide it. Uh, I, I'd agree with you in that, you know, stylistically, I, I was just never really a fan uh, of of that kind of of delivery of the uh, uh, sort of over the top. And again, the uh, little bit of the the faux uh, uh, common man uh, type type approach. Um, so uh, you know, I I think it's. Good. Look, bad behavior is bad behavior, regardless of where it is on the uh, political spectrum. And uh, 
uh, neither side should uh, tolerate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I see what you're saying, but there has to be something there in the first place. Uh, but, but I also think there can be sort of a synergy. Certainly social media has a power to kind of keep these things in the public eye when, when millions of people are sharing things and with hashtags and so forth. But, but, but you're right, of course, there needs to be some sort of thing there in the first place. And without uh, an old style news organization breaking this story, none of this would have happened in the first place. All right, moving on. Uh, you know, we should thank our new supporter this week, Michael from Hamburg, Germany, one of our many international listeners. Around, wow. uh, yeah, thank around, you, yeah, around 25% actually of our audience uh, comes from outside the United States. And we appreciate you all. And this week, we especially appreciate Michael, who made a, a generous donation to the show through PayPal. Um, and, you know, of course, Putting out two episodes of the Politics Guys week in and week out takes a lot of work and listener support, like from Michael, along with advertisers, are really what makes it possible for us to keep on doing the show. And so if you're interested in helping out, you can do what Michael did last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. And of course, spreading the word about the show by sharing and retweeting our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings on your podcast app. That helps out a lot. And best of all, it doesn't cost a thing. So thanks so much for your support. We appreciate it. Okay, moving on. Executive orders. My God, a lot of them this week. President Trump issued a bunch. He's and, back at it. You know, he really is. You know, And I think among the most consequential, uh, well, there was one that called for a review of whether low-cost imported steel was damaging national security. There was another that orders a review of the H-1B visa program for skilled workers and then there were two orders related to the 2010 Dodd-Frank financial reform legislation, one that calls for a review of banking regulations that allow the Financial Stability Oversight Council to designate certain institutions as too big to fail and then subject them to tighter scrutiny. Then there was a second that reviews what's called the Orderly Liquidation Authority, which gives the FDIC the ability to sort of slowly wind down large failed financial institutions so they don't take down more of the system with them. So I thought we should probably take these one at a time, Jay. Um, so first, what are your thoughts on the Steele executive order? I, you know, I think it's it's Trump um, trying to make good on some campaign promises. Uh, I don't know that anything's going to come of it because, again, look at what these orders actually say. They're sort of orders of, hey, let's take a look at, let's do a study, let's let's do some consideration. So I, th I think it's it's stuff that he's doing to sort of give himself some leverage uh, if he wants to uh, push back on uh, imports at some point. Um, the, the problem that he'd, he'd run into, of course, is is there are other trade agreements out there that uh, we would essentially have to either either violate or or you know find some some loophole. Some saying, listen, something saying, listen, this the other uh, country is dumping is is acting improperly under the uh, WTO protocols and so forth uh, that would justify this. But you know the the authority for the president to do this, I think, is is ironclad to the extent that uh, it's a national security issue. Um, so I don't I don't see anything uh, really exciting coming of this immediately. And I think the other thing is is Trump will see a pushback from American manufacturers uh, who depend on low cost steel. So um, uh, you know I think it's it's more political than actual policy at, at this point. Uh, but he might use it as a as something of a piece down the road if he if he if he needs to. Yeah, you know I mean, and this is sort of a unique 
way to approach it. It's it's based on this 1962 Trade Expansion Act, uh, where the Commerce Department can enact emergency trade sanctions if it's in the interest of America's national security. To me, that national security argument seems like more than a little bit of a stretch, certainly, but you're certainly right that this goes in right in with his, I'm going to save the coal industry, I'm going to save the steel industry, and so forth. And, you know, uh, we should point out that especially people, I think when people tend to think about the steel industry in the United States, they maybe have a vision of what it was like many moons ago when it was this huge thing. But I read, I was reading an article in the Times this week and they gave a figure of 140,000 or so. Actually, I think that figure is a little off. I went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and according to them, in May of 2016, all of U.S. steel employment from CEOs down to the people who clean the floors was mm-hmm. under 90,000 people. I mean, so this is not a this is not a huge sector of the economy. Even if you saved every single one of those jobs, or even if you doubled steel employment, this is this is a tiny little you know chunk of overall. Well, and, and also the other the other piece of it is to the extent those jobs have have decreased, diminished since the heyday of of the 1960s. So much of it is is due to technology. Yep. Uh, and and changes in, in that world. Uh, you know, I can give. The, I don't have statistics. This is anecdotal, but you know, I'm I'm coming from Cleveland, which is you know a big steel center. Um, there are plants that in the in the heyday in uh, the 1950s 1960s employed you know 40 50 thousand people. Uh, today they may employ five thousand uh, people, um, but their production is they produce more steel than they did back in those days. Right. Uh, and that's just sort of an indication of 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 what's changed um, technology wise. Uh, so so yeah, I think it's I, I think this is this Trump sort of doing a shot across the bow, um, uh, and uh, you know to the extent that he can boost American steel production and and look look good uh, doing it and say hey I'm standing up for it, great. Uh, but I I don't expect that he would ever pull the trigger, uh, I guess, and and really. Uh, uh, fall back on that act to, uh, to do, to place emergency sanctions. Right. And, you know, even if he does, and this is the other part of it, I think that's really important is China only accounts for around 2% of imported U.S. steel. I mean, and so the, the real problem here is even if we put massive sanctions on, it really wouldn't have much of an effect because what happens is China has all of this excess capacity in steel making, which they, they built up when they were going through this amazing growth spurt over the last few decades. And so they're dumping this steel worldwide and that depresses prices all over the world. And so our sanctions wouldn't do anything much except for, as you pointed out earlier, raise the cost to people who are trying to build stuff in the United States. And and I think you're right. They're going to get a lot of pushback from other industries who rely on low cost imported seal, who wouldn't be able to get that if there were huge tariffs on it. So, so anyway, uh, what about that H-1B executive order? Now, the president claims that the lottery system for awarding these visas is just no good, essentially. And, of course, many critics of the program have said that it displaces U.S. workers and it depresses salaries. Do you think this is a program that is in need of review, Jay? Yeah, I do. And I think that was pretty much a consensus across the board uh, in the uh, uh, presidential election from from both the Democrats and the and the whole field of Republicans uh, is that the way this program has worked, it's it's led to sort of abuses. The idea originally was to be able 
to attract uh, high skilled uh, workers from from foreign countries uh, to do jobs that Americans sort of can't do, where we had deficits, where we didn't have uh, enough people to to fill those positions, um, and and I, uh, you know, what it's what it's become has has been, as you said, sort of being able to bring people in uh, and uh, pay them less than than they would have paid their American counterparts, uh, at least to start. Um, so I think it's it's ripe for review, uh, you know, to the extent that there's any, you know, fundamental changes, I think it's, it's going to have to be a more, um, uh, oh, I guess broader, uh, you know, rewrite of, of the whole program. And, and that's, that's, you know, what we'll see, I think eventually, I think he'll come out with a some sort of a definitive plan of here's, here's how it will work. But, but this is, you know, with the stories, the anecdotes that you get of the people who have to train their replacements and so forth. Uh, and I, again, I think it's, it's a political step, that he's taking and it's smart politics. Uh, I don't, th- I think it sort of does no harm from a policy perspective. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so, so far so good. If you're, if you're looking on the, the spectrum of, of Trump, uh, uh, executive orders, I think this is probably a pretty, pretty, uh, good, reasonable one. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you on that. A couple of points I wanted to make on this is, is, is first off, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these visas in the lottery end up going to outsourcing companies where they bring people in and train them and those jobs go back again. But even for the jobs that stay here, uh, you know, this is, this is great for these certain sort of low, I mean, not really low skill, but lower skill than what's intended for this program employers. Number one, they get to get Pete, they get people in at lower cost. And number two, if people are fired from these jobs, they have to leave the country. So that gives employers a lot of leverage. And also they can't leave their hiring company to start a startup in the United States. Right. When, and, and right. It's a build, a build in non-compete. Yeah. So I mean, for those, for those who, who are really high skilled yeah, uh, and, and would be a, a, a threat to do that. Yeah, so I, I really think that this is this is a step in the right direction. I agree with you, Jay. This is a program that is desperately in need of, uh, of revision, and I, I hope something good comes of this. And I, I want to say, I mean, because I, I don't see this as being uh, anti-immigrant. No, not in, at all. In any, any way, shape, or form. I think this is more just a let's rationalize what our, what our policy is on these visas and uh, let's let's make them do what they were supposed to do in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a broader concern that some people have saying that they're they're worried that our immigration policy might tilt too far toward sort of skilled professions and, and, and education and sort of then, in a sense, end up keeping people out who don't have those sort of those sort of qualifications and end up having some sort of negative defect, effect on certain regions and so forth and and I get that I think diversity is is oftentimes you know very much a strength but I also but think that's that's really a separate argument yes exactly how this this program should be administered exactly absolutely the case okay finally the Dodd Frank executive orders of course on the campaign trail. Donald Trump claimed that he drained the swamp and he railed against big financial firms like Goldman Sachs. But once he got into office, he named a ton of these people the top spots in his administration. And, you know, while he says that he wants to, in his words, review the damaging Dodd-Frank regulations that failed to hold Wall Street firms accountable, I'd say he's actually working in exactly the opposite direction by pushing yet another Wall Street-run government that makes it easier for these huge financial firms to take big risks and increases the chance that when they fail, they'll take down others with them. Uh, Jay, I'm guessing you probably don't see eye to eye yeah, with me on this. You, you know, I look, I, 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 um, 
I think you're putting more of a little political shine on it than than I would. Okay. How so? Um, today, I, I think there's there's plenty of, of objective uh, evidence to say that Dodd-Frank regulations have sort of stymied uh, the economy. There are things that we uh, – there's a dynamism that's been, been taken out because of uh, overregulation. Uh, that's not to say that we shouldn't uh, make sure that those who ought to be held accountable are held accountable. Um, but look, let's let's take a step back and say did – did Dodd Frank overwrite, overregulate a lot of these uh, these these situations? And when you when you have something like uh, the 2008 financial crisis, what typically happens, both from a, um, a legislative perspective and then a regulatory perspective, is you sort of almost have a free pass. You know what I mean? When you when you have something that is is so bad, say immediate action is necessary. Uh, I think was was. Uh, uh, President Obama's uh, first uh, chief of staff, who said, "You know, never let a good crisis go to waste," and, and that's sort of what what they did. And there were a whole lot of uh, there were some sensible things in Dodd Frank that were put in, uh, but there were also a lot of uh, uh, regulatory overreach, legislative overreach, things that had sort of been in the the liberal playbook for for years. That how now's the chance to to get it out there. So I think a, a review is in order. Um, is it government by Wall Street? No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, but but look, you have to listen to the regulated community. I think I, I don't think that's a a bad thing to do, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, things that are are really pretty complicated, uh, and and there are a whole lot of moving parts uh, that that are affected downstream. Um, how about that for a mixed metaphor? Um, that uh, that the regulators may not may not think of you know i don't entirely disagree with you on this jay uh, uh i i probably i might even more agree than disagree with you at, at least wow. looking at it from, well looking at it from a certain way here here's what i mean no no policy no big policy that makes major changes is going to right out of the gate be perfect it's not even going to be necessarily great there are always going to be flaws and problems because there are a lot of moving parts society's a complex thing and so when you pass something big you're going to you know it's going to go into effect you're going to see on the ground all of a sudden there are some problems and some of those problems can be ironed out through the regulatory process and that's great but i can't think of a single case where all those problems could be and so Good policy is supposed to be iterative, meaning that Congress passes a law and then they kind of the regulators go to work and then you, you you look a few years later and you say, you know what, this didn't quite work. We need to make some changes here. And this is, I think, where the fundamental dysfunction of our current system is really hurting us. Because like with this, I'd argue with Obamacare is a similar thing, both the well, the two single biggest things that President Obama did, for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. We don't have this opportunity for Congress to go in and make those changes because you have such incredibly polarized sides. And they say, no, we're not going to. We, we just want this to fail, essentially. And that's where we run into these problems is no one wants to try to work with what we have. It's just that let's tear, let's tear it down and start again. And I think that's just so incredibly damaging. And that's a recipe for really uh really well failed policies and you know, I don't know what do you think about that Jay? well let's I mean so let's keep in mind that what he's talking about from an executive order standpoint is a review of regulations that were put in uh, so it, it's the the scope of this executive order is is fairly limited um, 
you know, it's it's to take a look at regulatory action that might be taken to undo regulatory action uh, down the road. You know what what you're talking about, and I think what what's eventually going to be needed is a legislative overhaul. Yeah, that's um, exactly what I meant. So, yeah. but I think that's we're we're not we're not there yet. So I think, look, the the regulatory tweaks uh, I think are always a good thing. Um, uh, but uh, you know, look, we're going to have a, a bigger uh, fight legislatively, and and my sense is there may be some Democrats that that could get pulled on uh, with with this. I mean, because this is this is the kind of thing that's big enough that you can. Uh, put in some populist stuff that would appeal to both Democrats and also sort of Trump, uh, uh, sort of America first populists uh, of of getting rid of the too big to fail idea uh, and holding holding the the big guys accountable. And th- I think that populist theme could 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 work uh, to to get votes. But no one has put out any sort of legislative proposal uh, that that's got any kind of traction yet on those those bigger issues. Well, you know, I, I, I agree with you again in part, but I think the problem is, is what Trump is focusing on with these executive orders is exactly the wrong problem. To me, I, I certainly agree that there are some major issues with Dodd-Frank, but I think they tend to be major issues focused primarily on the the burdens that Dodd-Frank imposes on the smaller institutions, the community banks and so forth. And I think there's a, it's really important right, that- because because the Goldman Sachs of the world, uh, and, and this is sort of the common problem in any sort of legislative or regulatory change, the big guys uh, can afford exactly. regulation. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but Trump's executive orders don't focus on that at all. They focus on the largest of the large, cutting them more. So, and to me, that's to me kind of feeds right into this. I think if you, if you say, well, maybe we should review pulling back on tighter regulation of the hugest, hugest, that can't be a word, the biggest banking organizations. I mean, that's the problem because if big banking, I mean, we Dodd Frank didn't do anything to cut down on the ultimate size of these organizations, and maybe that was a good thing, maybe not. I don't know. That's that's another. Well, I would debate. I would argue Dodd Frank, because of the regulatory burden, encouraged more uh, consolidation in the industry because those regulatory costs are, are higher, and therefore you need a big organization to be able to shoulder them. Well, I, I think that's that's sort of a, that's sort of a separate argument. But. Yeah, but I think maybe on the on the lower end, the medium end, maybe, but not. I don't think on the you know the Goldman Sachs of the world didn't necessarily need to do that. But 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 I see your point. But in any case, I think he's focusing on the wrong problem, given the fact that he's got such a, a a large number of Goldman Sachs people in his administration. There are Goldman Sachs people in every administration, but the Trump administration, I think, is even more top heavy with them. I think he's listening to the wrong people on this. And, and this goes back to one of my more fundamental concerns with Donald Trump is that given that he there's so much that he knows so little about in terms of policy, I think he's much more vulnerable than many previous presidents have been to what his top advisors are saying. And when those people are people who spent their careers with Goldman Sachs, I think they're going to be not because they're evil people, but just because of their previous life experiences, they'll have a tendency to see what's good for the United States as what's good for Goldman Sachs. And I certainly would say that that's not, that not exactly the case. Yeah. My, my sense is you almost get the, the, the feeling that, Trump went to his advisors and said, "Hey, give me something on Dodd Frank." Yeah, yeah, uh, and and they did. Yeah, <laughs> now exactly. he's going to, to move forward with it. Yeah. 
I think I think it would he would have been gotten a lot better advice if he talked to some some community banking leaders and so forth. And I think they would have they would have uh, enlightened him in a way that might actually be helpful. But that- but, but there will though. I mean, keep in mind with when all these kind of things, there's always going to be public comment, and there's going to be there's going to this is starting the discussion. So yeah, and that. You're right. That's a good point because, and you know, some people might say, well, why didn't Donald Trump just issue executive orders overturning this stuff? And it's not that easy. Once a regulation is in place, there is a long and involved process with, with, uh, with notice and public comment and and the inevitable lawsuits and so forth. So it can take, it can take years literally for, for regulations to be overturned or changed in any kind of meaningful way. And so I think that's why he's focusing on review because it's something that can be done, boom, relatively quickly, you know, in a couple of months or so forth. So, but you're right. The first part of a long process. Okay. Finally today, you know, another name I don't think we've mentioned on the show before. Thank God. And, sorry. Well, I think we've mentioned her. Maybe we have. Ann Coulter, someone who makes Bill O'Reilly look like the calm, sensible <laughs> voice of reason and moderation. Uh, you know, the conservative bomb thrower Coulter was scheduled to speak at the University of California at Berkeley, but the school initially canceled the speech, citing credible threats of violence against her. Now, after so actual bomb throwers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Good point. Yeah. Now, after an uproar in conservative circles, the school reinstated Coulter's invitation, but made it for a time and place where they believe Coulter's and the public's safety would not be as serious of a concern. Uh, now, Coulter says she's still going to come this uh, in a few days, actually, this, this coming week to speak. Uh, and I'm wondering, Jay, do you think that those lefties at Berkeley are censoring conservative speech or you think there are legitimate safety, safety concerns to consider here? Oh, I, I think both. <laughs> you know, okay. I, and, I, and I think this sort of works works hand in hand. Um, uh, you know, what what troubles me, and, and again, we've, we've maybe reached sort of a a, a real turning point with this campus uh, speech debate, with uh, uh, the Charles Murray uh, incident, with the uh, uh, Milos Yiannopoulos uh, incident, and now with this, uh, uh, Heather McDonald also was sort of uh, had a had a fair, pretty bad campus experience uh, recently. Um, and you know what what troubles me is, look, this has been going on for years, um, but now. It's sort of like the left is is playing along and saying, um, well, it's it's just too it's just too darn dangerous um, uh, because of because of you know these students who, who or if you want to say outside agitators, um, uh, which was a wonderful phrase from the, the movie The Graduate. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Norman Fell uh, concerns about outside av- agitators at at that that institution. Um, you know whether there's there always seems to be the the deans and the uh, uh, folks get up and they they applaud free speech and say we're all committed to this and uh, uh, you know we want to hear all viewpoints and uh, no matter how noxious uh, even though I, I don't I don't find Ann Coulter be noxious I think she's wow. obnoxious perhaps okay. uh, but uh, what she's saying is is you know mainstream she just sort of says it loudly. Um, but at the same time, there's sort of the wink to the uh, the the other left that will go out and um, set things on fire and and start riots and then blend back into the mostly peaceful demonstration. Um, and I, and I, I think that's that troubles me a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly troubles me too. Where we see this that's this uh, this rising intolerance on on both sides, really. Now I should point out that you well, know. 
Well, I know. I think it's I think it's on both sides. I I I seem to recall uh, plenty of Trump rallies during the campaign that weren't exactly uh, peace fest, love ins, that sort of thing. With in fact, uh, Donald Trump actually encouraging it sometimes. But anyway, I, so I think it's I think it's bipartisan. But I think it's a problem. I agree with you there. But you know, and I I think though that uh, Berkeley should be concerned about safety issues, and they have a good reason to. And so I think their response is understandable and reasonable. And, you know, there were some of these uh, some of these groups, the Young America's Foundation, which sponsored it, and the, the Berkeley, I believe, College Republicans uh, say that they're going to sue. But to me, I don't know if they have much of a case because uh, from, from, I mean, reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on speech are perfectly okay. The courts have said so sure. for years. And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. But but to me, the bigger concern is why we're seeing more of this. Because I think we're seeing more of this. And I think we're seeing more of this because the news, especially, I think, social media, which is how a lot of these outside agitators are kind of organizing – is I think the most effective outrage machine that's ever been created. And it just feeds that sort of thing in a very, in a very, I'll use the word you just use in a very noxious sort of way. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, I should mention kind of as an aside, um, I listened to a, a podcast a few days ago, uh, Sam Harris, who does this waking up podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Sam Harris, I think is kind of, he, he's annoying to me sometimes for a lot of reasons. <laughs> he's one of those new atheist guys, but he, he oftentimes has some interesting, interesting things to say. And he had a guy on named Tristan Harris, who's a, a former design ethicist at Google. And he started this nonprofit called Time Well Spent. And they talk about what technology is doing to us. I, I definitely recommend people check it out. Uh, really interesting. Made me think about how we use social media, even on the show, and, and maybe even uh, consider some changes in how we do that. But but to me, the main point here, going back to this, this generation of outrage, and I, what, what kills me is that it seems like that's exactly what Ann Coulter and people like Ann Coulter want. It's what they need to thrive. And so I, we're, I feel like liberals, we're, we're playing right into her hands here. It's one thing, you know, it, it's one thing to do it to, to, to Charles Murray, who totally didn't deserve it. But I can understand getting outraged about Ann Coulter. But without outrage. Well, exactly. No, I agree. Ann Coulter has, and Milos uh, Yiannopoulos. Yeah. Uh, have have made sort of careers out of being outrageous figures. Yes, they are professional uh, as opposed provocateurs. To, as opposed to Murray, who is an academic, uh, Heather McDonald, who is you know, perhaps you know controversial columnist, but but still not not intentionally outrageous. Um, that said, though, I mean the the First Amendment is is there to protect outrageous speech because non outrageous speech, at least it didn't used to be, uh, doesn't need protection. Sure. But I mean, but, but you know what I'm saying that in that in yeah. by, by violently, sometimes violently protesting, you're, you're simply feeding the flames and giving these ridiculous, destructive people exactly what they want, that that's their oxygen. And so I just think it's such an incredibly self-defeating thing. And we've talked about this before uh, in previous context, this sort of, uh, I guess you could call it, I think we might have called it moral preening. Sort of well, I yeah. will. I will show you how much of a better person I am by by shutting you down because you you like know throwing a brick through the window. Yeah, you know, and it just. I think people need to step back and say, I, I see this a lot. You know, what exactly do we hope to accomplish here? 
Do, do we want to just sort of vent our spleen? Do we just want to emote? And how will this advance what really matters to us? And and there's, I think, just such a lack of sort of rational consideration. People are just sort of, you know, going with their guts on these things. And I think that's exactly what we need less of, not more of. Yeah. Um, you know, my my solution, that's not a solution, but it's it's a step in the right direction, would be for these campuses to actually take action against some of these uh, these people who are uh, acting violently. Um, so far, no one has been ex- uh, uh, expelled uh, from uh, Sunbury uh, for the, the Charles Murray incident. Uh, the last Berkeley incident with, with Milos, uh, no one has been uh, expelled, disciplined, uh, arrested. I think there was one arrest. Um, and, and, you know, so, so administrators and the left give all this, oh, well, uh, I may hate what you say, but I'll fight to the death uh, for your right to say it. It's sort of said with like a, a nod and a wink um, uh, to these these folks who want to be violent and know that, look, they probably won't suffer any severe consequences for it. Um, so, I, I mean, that's that's sort of the, the concern that I have, as opposed to uh, your your typical conservative student who, if he steps out of his, his three by five, uh, uh, you know, um, free speech zone uh, can be disciplined for for passing out flyers or or you know whatever. So to me, I, I think the the college administrations need to to start putting the money where their where their mouths are. Uh, and if they're going to say that they they really support free speech, then they need to do that and actually take some steps uh, to take uh, disciplinary action against these these people who are shutting down speakers. So are, are you saying that you think that there's double standard where conservative students are more readily? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Really? Huh. I, 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 absolutely. Would, I would disagree. I would say that people who, uh, who uh, advance uh, uh, hate speech and violence and so forth, certainly it's more likely that they're going to be disciplined. But I think that's exactly how it should be. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that those people are fair representatives of uh, the conservative movement as I understand it. And so I, I'd say that's a, that's a separate thing. So I would disagree with you on that. I'd also say that I think it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to take these disciplinary steps in part because some of the most violent people, I believe, oftentimes aren't students. They're these people who come in from outside, outside agitators, as you point out, you outside know, and agitators. And well, it, you know, but, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, so much of this is, it's all on video these days, you know, that's a good point. And people post about it and there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. Um, so that's, that's what makes it again, sort of troubling that, um, you know, let, let's put it this way. It, in the last Berkeley clash, uh, there was one arrest. Um, now, again, you can turn on the TV and watch people throwing bricks through windows, setting things on fire, uh, and police standing there. Uh, and, you know, look, that's that sends the message that, okay, I'm going to stand back and let you do this, uh, and there won't be a price to pay. Well, yeah, uh, I, in I, fact, yeah. In fact, that person that person is is going to be sort of a hero to, to their own – uh, their own group, uh, it'll be, Hey man, I'm the guy who threw the, the brick. Um, I, I and, see what you're saying. That's okay. a problem. Well, I, I see what you're saying, but on the other hand, then when, uh, campus police sort of really crack down on things that then they run the risk of, uh, the, the overreaction and, and the lawsuits and hurting and hurting people who, you know, shouldn't be hurt. We've seen a number of incidents about that in the past. And so it's, it's a, you know, it's a, 
difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. And I think that people tend to err on the side of, of not, you know, kind of cracking down because I think oftentimes that can lead to, to worse overall consequences. But, but I certainly understand that tension. There's always, you know, I just want to throw this out. This may be my favorite of, of this year. My, the best euphemism uh, is sort of the mostly peaceful protest uh, that you always, that's, that's how it's always reported in the media. That's how it's always reported by the, the college deans who go out and say this began as a mostly peaceful protest. Um, nobody ever talks about like we had a slightly violent protest or a moderately violent protest. And I, I, I think, uh, so next, I'm just saying, listeners, next time one of these things happens and it, and it will listen for the words, mostly peaceful. They will always precede, uh, the rest of the story. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, don't you think that there's a, a very real possibility if if the police use sort of kind of hardcore sort of tactics that they can take something that's sort of a mostly peaceful and turn it into not quite as peaceful. I mean, crowds tend to react to that sort of thing, and that can actually, I, at least I believe, ratchet up the overall level of violence. No. Sure, sure, it, it could, but but again, if if you're going to stand by and and let places burn. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, then the, the the outside agitators, if you will, have already won. Yeah. Well, I see your point there. And certainly we can agree that it is not a, it is not an easy job. Crowd control. When people and again, I'm, so... not, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about, you know, fire hosing people carrying signs. I'm talking about the people who are who are setting things on fire, the people who are jumping on top of police cars, sure. uh, the people who are smashing windows. Um uh, those those are, are folks that you can say, aha, that guy right there is not being peaceful. He's he's committing a crime. I'm going to arrest him. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. I think that— And if, if the rest of the crowd supports him, then shame on them. Uh, uh, and then they've, they've lost that sort of moral authority to say, oh, I'm, I'm out here having a peaceful protest, uh, if they're cheering on the guy who's uh, breaking the window. Yeah, no, I, I, on that note, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. The people who are— Committing crimes definitely need to be uh, prosecuted for that. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or if you just want to say hi, our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website, politicsguys.com. You know, if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stitcher, whatever podcast app you use, leave ratings and reviews of the show on your app and share or retweet our new show posts and tweets. These things are the most effective ways to spread the word about the show, which in turn broadens our listener base and helps us attract donations and advertisers that make the show possible. And speaking of advertisers, we hope you check out our two sponsors of today's show, Upside.com. Remember to use that promo code BizTrip for a $200 Amazon gift card and DollarShaveClub.com slash TPG, where for a limited time, new members get an executive razor, a month's worth of cartridges, and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for only 5 bucks with free shipping. Again, that's DollarShaveClub.com slash TPG. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.